Janie and I had a great time on our vacation. Um, got to go hang out on a cruise ship for a week with my mom and my sister, and, and uh, it's always fun to be with family. And um, we had a, a wonderful time, and I'm praising God that we weren't on one of the two other carnival ships that are now stranded in the ocean, um, really thinking my... Uh, i got to think through whether I'm going to uh, book on Carnival again, but uh, praise God. Ours was a good ship, and we had a good time, and, and uh, appreciate James filling in while I was gone. Um, we're going to start a new journey today uh, about what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, and we're going to kind of get this big picture target of, of what you need to know, and so we're going to start off um, today, and, and I wanted to tell you about... Uh, this dad I read about, his name was Bob, and uh, Bob really wanted his kids to understand grace. And so every once in a while, his kids would get in serious trouble, and they, knew, they would know they're about to be punished or d- disciplined, and dad would just uh, say, okay, today I'm going to let you off. And the reason I'm letting you off, he'd say, do you know why I'm going to let you off? And they'd say, no, and he'd say, because of grace. And he'd say, do you know uh, what grace means? And the, and the kids would say, no. And he'd say, well, there's never a reason for grace. You know why I'm giving you grace? No, there's never a reason for grace. There's no reason at all for grace. And once his son, Ryan, had violated several very important rules simultaneously and was about to receive justice. You parents know what that is, right? Um, And so he knew this was coming, so he says, Dad, can't you please cut me some grace? And Bob, who was not in a very gracious mood at the time, said, Why? Give me one good reason why I should cut you some grace. And, and his son looked at me and goes, Dad, you know, and he's kind of perplexed because Dad had this momentary theological lapse. And he said, there's never a reason for grace, right? And so you think he got off? He probably did. Today, we're starting this journey, and we're going to look at some mile markers that will help you understand where you are on this journey. Becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ does not happen overnight. There are actually some steps, some mile markers along the way. You saw that on the roll in some uh, guides, some mile markers. The first one we're going to look at today is grace. And I want to ask you this. In this dog-eat-dog, I'm number one. I'm looking out for number one. It doesn't matter who you step on as long as you get to the top world. Where is the only place you can find grace? Christ. And so the church, the only thing that we, the one thing we have to offer that people can't get anywhere else in the world is grace when you talk about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And see, the world can't say to human beings, you were lost, but now you've been found. The world can't say you were guilty, but now you've been pardoned. The world can't say you were dead in trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive. But the scripture tells us very clearly that's what happened when Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. Paul is writing a letter to the uh, Ephesians, um, and and, uh, he's writing to Christians, folks who've already come out of this dark past into a very bright future. And look what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He's talking to Christians. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the power in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy... And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. 
So I want to I look at some things. You have to understand the condition of someone without Christ or you'll never understand grace. So we've got to understand what it was like before Christ. So there's a couple of things, actually three things I want you to see about unbelievers. First, unbelievers are spiritually dead. By the way, some of you don't know that if you have your smartphone, you can, uh, you can go to Uversion. You can download that app. If you have the app, all you have to do is uh, go to Live. Uh, on the screen there, if you punch that and then you go in, it'll say, who are you looking for? You just put in 75801, 802, 803, whatever, and it'll bring up today's sermon title and you can follow online there. Follow that on your phone. Unbelievers are spiritually dead. Those who do not believe in God aren't sick, they're dead. Joe, can you uh, take this light down a little bit and bring up some other lights? That one's kind of bright and it's difficult to see. So, okay, those who do not believe in God are not sick, they're dead. Oops, that's too much. This person does not need resuscitation. A dead person doesn't need resuscitation. A dead person needs resurrection. All believers are dead. And the only difference between one dead person and another dead person is is how long they've been dead. Which really, if you think about it this way, it's how decayed they are. You see, the, the homeless person who's on the side of the road may appear very decayed on the outside... And he may look better than the the society leader who's well-dressed up, the politician who looks good on the outside because of his clothes. But if they are unbelievers, if they're without Christ, they are both just as dead and they both need resurrection. It's as though the whole world was this huge graveyard and every gravestone said, dead because of sin. Second thing about unbelievers you need to understand. Unbelievers follow the ways of the world. This is in verses 2 and 3. Now, a dog behaves like a dog because he's a... If somehow you could transfer into the dog the nature of a cat, you would have ruined a good dog. But other than that, you would change the dog fundamentally, right? So the dog behaves like a dog because he's a dog. And what this is saying is, why does a sinner behave like a sinner? It's because he has the nature of a sinner, Unbelievers follow the ways of the world because that's all they know. And this does not mean that unbelievers can't do anything good. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is unbelievers cannot do anything to earn spiritual favor. They cannot earn heaven. There's no possible way to do that. Third thing, this is in verse 3b, the second half of verse 3. Unbelievers are doomed. Everyone is is dead in sin and under God's anger. And the literal translation here says children of God's wrath. And so the idea of children is that you're related to, not to God's love, not to God's provision for your future, but when you're dead in trespasses and sin, you are related to God's anger. That's a horrible picture. To be on the opposite side of the one who is good and and honest and pure and holy. And then right in the middle of all this description of our sorriness, because in in sin, we're, we're sorry. Paul shifts gears with two letters, two words, but God. It's it's some of the most remarkable words in all of Scripture because he's describing this horrible condition. And he says, but God, and look what it says, but God in his mercy does not give us what we deserve. And then it says, in his grace. Grace has to stoop down. Grace is, is, is uh, is one person stooping down and doing for someone else what they do not deserve. And so here's a, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. Grace, God stoops down through Jesus Christ and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And then, but God, 
did what? He made us alive. That's what the first thing or the next thing is for believers are made alive in verse five. God breathes spiritual life where there is no life. And you have to understand there's actually three types of death. There's physical death. Everybody understands physical death. There's spiritual death, which is separation from God. And then there's eternal death. Eternal death happens when someone who is spiritually dead dies physically without ever accepting Christ. And then they are eternally separated from God. There's no turning back from that point. As long as you still have breath, you have the opportunity to become spiritually alive, to have God breathe his life inside of you. You need an outside force to make you alive when you're dead. And in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus raise physically three people from the dead. He raised the widow's son in Luke 7. He raised Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8 and Lazarus in John chapter 11. In each case, Jesus spoke the words to the corpse and the corpse was made alive. And in that physical picture, we understand what happens spiritually whenever God makes us alive through Jesus Christ. He speaks the words when you become a believer. And actually, it says that in John chapter 5. It says, um, uh, I have it written here. Whoever hears my word and believes receives eternal life. So it's through hearing you accept, and that's what God does. And so you have to understand this concept. There's a, there's a basic foundational principle in Christianity that if you do not understand, you'll never understand grace. And here it is. Two words, substitutionary atonement. Now, the first word is take them apart. Such, substitute, you know what that was. Substitute, we had some teachers. I felt sorry. Now I feel sorry for substitute teachers who had us back in the day. Because the substitute is what you did everything to. You wanted to do the real teacher who would, back in my day, you got busted. And there, would, there were women in my school that would light your tail up. I mean, we feared these women because they were like, they were like Russian shot putters, you know, from back in the 70s. I don't know, some of y'all don't even remember that. These ladies could swing a bat, and, and their, their paddles were almost like bats. They were like sawed off in half, and they would light you up. And, uh, and grace was definitely not something that, that they gave us. Um, I don't know where I just... Substitutionary atonement. There we go. I got the thing. I Actually, I did. I was picturing this one lady, and she was about five foot tall and, and muscled, and that's what she lit us up. That's what got me distracted. We praised God when she wasn't there. Because one time I shot a thing at my buddy who was on the other side, and it was a paper clip, and I shot it with, and it hit the, the blinds, Thwack! you know, that real loud noise. And so, of course, he knew I did it. I missed him, but I hit the blind. Well, he shoots back, and it hits the, the locker out in the hallway, you know, goes up. Pew! The lady did not even look up. She said, Washburn, hunt, get in the hall. And we just, we thought she'd seen it. She had no idea. We walked out in the hall, and she's laughing. She goes, guys, I had no idea. It was y'all. And then she lit us up. So we were praising God when she wasn't in, in the classroom. A substitute is one who takes the place of. When we were, uh, used to coach soccer, we would say sub, and the, the referee would stop the game and allow a substitute to come on the field to take the place of someone else. Everybody's got the idea of substitute, right? Atonement is to pay the price that you owe. It'd be like owing a million dollars in back taxes and you're standing before the judge and someone walks in, somebody walks in and pays your fine. How would you feel about that? Because you know you're about to go to jail for the rest of your life. And someone walks in and pays the, the, the price that you pay, that you owe. So a substitutionary atonement is one who takes the place of and pays your debt. That's the idea of Christianity. 
We are all dead in trespasses and sins. But Jesus Christ steps down and says, I will pay the price. He takes the place of everyone who says, I don't want to pay the price. Because here's the deal. If you die spiritually dead and you stand before God, then you will die eternally because it's too late at that point. But if while you're alive you say, God, I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do to earn your forgiveness and your grace, and I accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross, then he steps in your place and you get into heaven because of what he did. That's substitutionary atonement. And so here's the basic idea of grace. This is the definition. Grace is love that pays a price. Grace is free to you, but the grace of Jesus Christ is the most costly gift that you will ever receive because it costs God his perfect, sinless son to die in your place. Grace always costs us something. And we as a church are called to be grace dispensers. And we're never more like Christ than when we're pouring out grace on people who do not deserve it. A couple of years ago, Janie and I went to uh, Orange Beach. She was the, the cook for camp. And uh, we were driving along and we heard this song over and over again. I, I'm not kidding. Probably 15 or 20 times in that week we heard this song. And it was it, driving home. I'll never forget. We were, we were on that long bridge, you know, in, in Louisiana where there's no land or anything, people or anything worth anything. You're driving along there and the song came on. And I just kind of got overwhelmed with the message. I want you to listen to this song. It's, it's uh, by Mike's chair. It's called Someone Worth Dying For. And, and as I was driving, Janie said, what's wrong with you? And I said, this is my calling, is to make sure that people who do not know about grace, someone notices them and tells them about grace. And in, this, in the video, you're going to see band members, and they're going to notice someone. And by the end, the people realize that their, their lives are worth something. Their lives have purpose. And, and really, the main um, line in the song is, help me to know, help people to know that there's someone worth dying for. Watch this and listen for grace. You might be the wife waiting up at night You might be the man struggling to provide Feeling like it's hopeless Maybe you're the son who chose a broken road Maybe you're the girl thinking you'll end up alone
several years ago, I was uh, sitting in a conference, and Janie was sitting next to me. We were in Chicago, and God radically changed my idea of what I was supposed to do with my life. And And what God, I was writing down, I have a notebook, and Janie was watching me, and, and she, we got back to the hotel room that night, and she said, I'm so glad I was here, because I, I know exactly where you're headed with your life, and, and I'm, I'm with you. And we came back, and we radically changed our idea of ministry from taking care of the already convinced to reaching people with the grace of God and telling everybody that we can that you're, you're someone worth dying for. Jesus' proclamation on the cross is that you have purpose. It's not an accident that you were born in Palestine. I know people hate Palestine. We love the place. Maybe there's something wrong with us. But we love being here and we love you. And we want to continue reaching out to people with this message that you matter. And, it, and, and yes, we mess up. And yes, our lives are... I don't know. Well, actually, I do. I think we're the most messed up church in Palestine. From what I know, and I don't even know everything, we're the most messed up church in Palestine. But we're not going to stay there. We're going to move down this journey towards becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. And we're going to continue to reach out to people with the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace is love that pays a price. And if you want to be like Christ, then you have to stoop down and give grace to those who don't even think they deserve it. And see, that's what I want you to do. I want you to understand where we're headed. And, and how do you live in grace? Well, I'm going to give you just real quickly some things here. If you want to live in grace every day, not just accept grace one time, if you want to live in grace every day, first thing you have to do is stay very close to the cross. I have to be reminded on a daily basis that it is my sin, my IOU that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And when I am close to the cross and I see that it is my sin that put him there, then I'm not so judgmental towards you. In fact, when I'm looking at the cross and my sin that put him there, I can't judge you at all. Because I see that I'm, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. And the only reason I'm alive is because I accepted what Jesus Christ did as my substitutionary atonement. You've got to understand that living close to the cross will cause people around you to notice that you're filled with grace. Second, you've got to stay real close to grace-providing people. We all need some people who will love us no matter what. My wife is one of the most grace-filled people on the planet. And, and uh, you know, we do ballroom dancing and all that stuff, and, and people are all the time going, your wife is so graceful. Nobody ever compliments my dancing, and I'm okay with that. Because, I mean, this is what they've told us for years, and I read this, and they tell us the dance lessons. Nobody's looking at you. They're looking at the girl. And so we get out on the dance floor, and I'm like, here she is. There's Miss Grace. And, and as long as she's graceful, nobody sees me mess up. And it's just like that in our marriage. She covers me with grace. She covers our children with grace. And see, you need this because there are kind of these grace-impaired people 
who will attack you relentlessly and tear you down. And so you've got to get close to people that will love you, warts and all, and pray for you to change. But they are, going to, they are going to be like a cool drink of water to you when you're in the desert, because we've all been through the desert. If you're not there right now, you'll go through the desert. And we're in a battle. There's a spiritual battle going on for our families, for our nation. And you need people who will come alongside you and say, I love you. Not I love you because, not I love you if, I love you. Do you have people like that? It is such a blessing in the family of God that we have that. Third, we've got to stay very close to sinful people who need grace and show it to them. Get close to people, love them, share your life with them, share your heart with them, share your faith with them. Jesus was called a friend of sinners, and, and he didn't take it as an insult. It was intended to insult him. It was the worst thing the Pharisees could say about him. You, you, you sorry friend of sinners. And Jesus wore it like a badge of honor. There's nothing, you read the pages of the New Testament, there was nothing he would rather do than draw near to people who knew they didn't deserve grace, and he poured it out on them. He called their sin, sin. But sin-filled people were drawn to Jesus. Are sin-filled people drawn to our churches? If not, we cannot say that we're following Jesus Christ. Because sin-filled people, they came and they heard. Jesus told the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. I kind of think she did what he said. They were going to stone her, kill her at Jesus' feet. And he said, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none, Lord. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. He loved to extend grace to people who didn't think they deserved it. And it got him into trouble all the time. Remember? Religious leaders didn't like it. Jesus is still looking for people who will extend grace. And one of my favorite stories about grace, I'm just going to read it to you because I, I, can't, I can't do it justice if I don't. A Christian writer shares this story. One time he was staying in Hawaii. He's from the East Coast, so it was still, he was still on East Coast time. And would wake up like 3 a.m. every morning. So he went to this diner and he was having coffee. And while he's sitting there, a group of women came in and sat down next to him. It was pretty apparent their profession. They were prostitutes, eight or nine of them there. As they were talking, one of them mentioned that it was her birthday the next day. And the other one kind of scoffed like, what do you want me to do? Have a party for you or something? There's a woman named Agnes and she said, no, I don't expect that. Nobody's ever had a birthday party for me. They all left. So this Christian writer asked the guy behind the counter, do they come in here every single night? And the counter man says, yeah. So this guy said, okay, well, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to come back tomorrow and I'd like to throw a birthday party for Agnes. So the guy behind the counter smiled and he said, okay. He called to his wife and his wife came out of the back room. The writer says she was all bright and smiley. That's wonderful, she said. Agnes is one of those people who's really nice. Nobody ever does anything for her. Look, I said, if it's okay with you, I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 2.30 and decorate the place. I'll even get a birthday cake. No way, said Harry, the name of the guy behind the counter. The birthday cake is my thing. I'll make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner with crepe paper decorations and big pieces of cardboard that said, Happy birthday, Agnes. I decorated that diner from one end to the other. I had it looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30, 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swings open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready. I was kind of the MC. When they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen someone so flabbergasted, so stunned. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. 
As she was led to sit on one of the stools, we all sang happy birthday to her. When we came to the end of our song, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes moistened, and when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she just lost it and cried. Harry gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to blow them out. And after a few seconds, he did. Then he handed her the knife and he said, cut the cake, Agnes, we all want some cake. Agnes looked at the cake, then without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Harry, is it okay with you if I keep the cake for a little while? Is it all right with you if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged. He said, Sure, it's okay with me. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want to. Can I? she asked. Then looking at me, she said, I just lived down the street a couple of doors. I'll take the cake home and be right back, I promise. She took off, picked up the cake, carried it like it was the Holy Grail, and walked towards the door. We just stood there motionless. When the door closed, the writer says, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, he says, it seems strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes, for salvation. I prayed her life would be changed and God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? And in one of those rare moments, when just the right words came, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and he almost sneered and he goes, No, you don't. There's no church like that. I'd join a church like that. I'd love to be a part of a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. I think that's the kind of church that Jesus came to establish. I sometimes wonder if, if Jesus would even be welcome in most of our churches, you know, the prim and proper ones where if you don't dress, smell, look, act, talk like the rest of us, then you're condemned. I don't believe that's what Jesus came to establish. Because when you read scripture, you see that he hung out with the low people and it got him into trouble. See, Jesus partied with the publicans and sinners and they loved him. The lepers of society who were the untouchables, who had to yell out unclean, who people had to, they had to stay Yards, 50 yards, I don't even know the, the, the distance. They had to stay a long ways away and yell out, unclean, unclean. Jesus touched them. Jesus hung out with them. And they loved him for it. That prostitute in Honolulu bumped into a Christian. And what fell out of, her, out of him was not judgment. It was grace. And I'm willing to bet it changed her. Because grace always changes us. I was reading this week about Peter Drucker, and Peter Drucker is known. His title is called, his title on this article I read is, The Man Who Invented Management. He was the dude writing the books back in 1950 about how, he's the one that actually transformed the way businesses in the United States and actually all over the world did business. He's the one that decentralized all of this stuff where you didn't have to have just this one place you could run business all over the world. Business people that, you, that are writing today go back to Peter Drucker's writings. 
Okay, that's, that's how big the guy was. In 2005, he died. Right Shortly before that, he was asked, Peter's such a smart guy. How is it that you ever became a Christian? Because, you know, we're told that, that Christianity is not a thinking man's religion. This guy said, you're so smart. You've done so many things in business. You've got everything that you could ever want. How did you ever become a Christian? Here's a quote from Peter Drucker. Someone sat down and explained grace to me. I felt like... I can't read it. Someone sat down and explained grace to me, and I felt like I was a fool if I didn't respond to grace. The journey to grace is different for different people. It's going to take some people a long time. Some people have all of these real questions, and we have to tear down these walls, these questions that they have, and they finally come to a point, and we lead them as far as we can. We can't lead anyone across the line of faith, and they step across, and they say, I accept grace. Some people, it doesn't take long. Some people are growing up in it, and they hear it, and they step across the line of faith, and they accept grace. But something shifts when people hear about grace. Something on the inside, they say, now I understand. I was blind, but now I see, and I'll never be the same. And where most churches fail is we stop with the message of grace. But the message of grace is just the first step on the journey. The next step we've got to take is growth. And spiritual growth is a choice. And I'm going to tell you this. You are as close to God as you choose to be because spiritual growth is all about choosing how close you want to be to God. If you, I want you to think about the direction of your spiritual lives. If you keep doing what you're doing right now, in one year, are you going to be any different than you are today? And if your answer is, I don't know, then I can tell you the answer is, you will be no different than you are today because spiritual growth is all about an intentional choice things that you have to do with your life. At some point, you have to say, I'm not going to be the person that I used to be anymore. I'm going to learn God's word. I'm going to immerse myself in God's word, and I'm going to allow God to change me from the inside out. I've accepted his grace. I have all the power I ever need to be the person God wants me to be. I'm just not tapping into the power. So you choose to grow spiritually. I want to be different. Well, how do you do it? God's word has the answer in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. It says, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. Now, many people hear about spiritual growth, and they think, oh, it's just this thing that I try harder to be like Christ. I try to be a patient person. I try to be kind. I try to be loving. I try to be giving, and I try harder. And that, makes, that, that works about as well as going out and trying very hard to run a marathon. How many of you could go out and run a marathon today? Not today? Okay. But you've trained. Have you run a half marathon? You've run both. I don't even want to run both, okay? Jared's my buddy. I'll cheer. Man, I'll go out and hand you water. You let me know. If it's not a Sunday morning, I'll come out and I'll, I'll hand water and I'll, I'll ride my motorcycle to the next stop. And yesterday we were riding and, and we passed some bicyclers and uh, we had to pass a bunch of them. Man, they're riding up and down hills. And we got there and, and Chad goes, don't they know we have more fun with less energy expended? I mean, we did the same thing. We rode the same hills, and we weren't puffing when we got there. A lot of people think, if I try hard, I can be like Christ, but I'm going to tell you, it has nothing to do with trying. It has everything to do with training. If we were to train for a year, and I don't even want to, but let's just pretend that we were to train for a year. How many of you were get on a strict diet and exercise training regimen for the next year? How many of you think you could run a marathon? I could. I don't want to, but I could. The rest of you could. You're just, you're not playing along. 
God wants us to train spiritually. And, and I love this definition of spiritual training. It's on your listening guide. It's up on the, on the screen. It's to engage in practices, experiences, and relationships that will help us to eventually do by training what we cannot do now just by trying harder. Does that make sense? It is to engage in practices, experiences, and relationships that will help us to eventually do by training what we cannot do now just by trying harder. And let me give you some practical things that will help you grow spiritually, but you have to choose to do them. First is daily Bible reading and prayer. That's on there. You don't even have to fill in a blank. Now, here's the thing. Formation into the image of Christ has to be your reason for for studying the Bible. If information is all you want, there will be no transformation. In fact, God didn't give you the Bible for information. He gave it for transformation. And so you have to have this idea that I want to become like Christ. Because in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter where it says, love is patient, love is kind, before that, verse 1, it says, if I have all knowledge, if I can speak in the tongues, the, the languages of earth, and I can speak in the languages of heaven, if I have all knowledge, if I give everything to the poor, and if I'm even burned at the stake for the cause of Christ, I am nothing without love. And, and 1 Corinthians 8, 1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul says, it doesn't matter how much information you have, if it does not transform you, you are not like Christ, and you're worthless in your spiritual endeavors. So the idea is, I want to become like Christ. And the reason you start studying the Bible and praying daily is not to get you into the Scriptures. It's, get to, the, it's to get the Scriptures into you. You feed on that, and God begins to transform you. Second thing, you need, uh, a habit you need to have is small group fellowship. You learn to offer grace and receive grace with others, never in isolation. The first one, prayer and Bible reading, you're supposed to do that in isolation. But if God tells you something, the reason he tells you is so that you can tell somebody else, and you do that in the midst of a group. God never gives you spiritual insight just for you. You're supposed to share what God gives you. So you need to be committed to a small group. And see, here's the thing. If you don't want to be in a small group, it's because you're choosing not to be in a small group because we got them all over the place. We've got a men's group. We've got one more week of our men's group on Sunday morning, but we've got a men's group that meets on Monday nights, and they've started studying the Multiply book. We've got triads, and that's three people. It's not real hard to get three people together to go through this Multiply book. It's an exceptional book about what it means to be a disciple. And then once you start going through, then you're going to be challenged to go find some other people and disciple them, walk them through what it means to be a disciple. We've got a women's Bible study. We've got FPU. We've got small groups on Sunday nights. There is something for everyone if you choose to do it. But you've got, to, you've got to make that choice. And then if you will start sharing what God is, is telling you, your spiritual growth will go to the next level. Third thing is large group teaching and worship. That means we commit ourselves to coming regularly together to submit to the teaching of God's word. When we get together to worship, we come together to celebrate the goodness of God. And in fact, when I explain to people what our church is like, I say our, our worship service, and people ask this from time to time, what is it like? And I say, well, there's really three things that we focus on. Celebration, inspiration, preparation. Celebration, I want the music to have a beat. I want people to be caught up in who God is because our music is, is encouraging them. I don't want it to be like a funeral or like elevator music. I like it when people are clapping. And it's okay, you know, if you, if you kind of tap your foot. Some of you shouldn't dance, but we won't get on to you if you do. We want it to be a celebration. 
inspiration. Every week I pray, God, help me to honor you with what I say. Help me to be faithful to Scripture and help me to inspire people from your word to make a change. And that's something that's supernatural. I can't do that. If you make a change, then God has, has to be working in this deal. And then preparation. Did you know that the, the, the ministers, the pastors of the church are given to the church according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following? They're given so that they can equip the church to do the work of ministry. Never was it intended by God for the pastors to do all the work. Well, we hire somebody to do all of that. We hire somebody. No, that is not God's idea. That's man's idea. And that's why so many churches are failing. My job is to help equip you to actually do the work of service. And so if you're not committed to the bride of Christ, you're not committed to Christ. So you need to make church a regular part of your schedule. Fourth thing is take ownership of the ministry. If the local church is the hope of the world, and I believe it is, or I think I'm wasting my time. If the local church is the hope of the world, then you tell me where you can expend your energy, where you can invest your time and your talents and your treasure that has as much payoff as right here. I double dog dare you to find a place. Because if this is what Jesus died for, if he died to establish the church, if it's his bride, there is no other place in the world that has as much potential payoff for you to plant your life there. God has called us, gifted us, and commanded us to serve. We take ownership when we have a personal stake in the success or failure of the ministry. We give our time, our money, our talents to support the ministry. And when you take ownership of the ministry, you move from a consumer to being a responsible member of God's family. I mean, what I want my kids to do, I want my kids to grow up, and, and as much as I love them, they're eventually going to leave home. And, and my, my greatest desire is that they will become responsible members, not just of society, but of God's kingdom. Don't you want your kids to grow up? Those of you who have children, those of you who hope to have children someday, you want your kids to grow up and be mature. That's the whole idea of the church. And if we do our job right, we continually are bringing in new people and we're helping grow them up and the church grows and God gets the glory for that. Now, here's the thing about spiritual growth. Your training must be tailor-made for you and by you. There is no such thing as, as a, um, a daily plan that will help everybody out there grow the same. There's no such thing. Now, you can read about other people and you can try different methods and I can tell you what I do, but I, I'm going to tell you that I experimented for years before I came with what helped me grow on a daily basis. There's no such thing as a plan that works for everybody. Our creative God created you unique, beautiful, with a purpose, and he will creatively and uniquely remake you into the image of Christ so that you can serve him and bring him glory. Now, I think most of you have a picture. There's a picture there at the end, Mike. Y'all have a picture like this? Y'all know what that is? That's the doorpost right off of our kitchen where we measure our kids. You notice that one that has a great big Caleb. That's where he wrote his own name there. <laughs> and then there's one. You can't really see it. Um, there's, kind of, there's Caleb here, and then there's R.E.W. That's Rachel there. And then there's another one right there. When you get up right above that, there's one that, that Rachel was excited because one day you know, there's, there's a pencil mark, and it says, Mom. And then there's Rachel Elizabeth Washburn, just like this much higher than mom. And that's like her goal in life was to, you know, grow taller than her mama. And then there's Caleb. And, and it's, I think the last time we measured him was, was in 11 because he outgrew me. And he's like, you know, what's the purpose of, of measuring anymore? I'm taller than dad. Um, 
how come, how come you don't just mark, why don't you just pre-mark the door jam? Your baby's born, just start putting marks up there. This is where I think they'll be. This is where they should be. I mean, we actually do that when they take a measure. He's in the 87th percentile or whatever. Big stinking deal, you know? We actually measure them over time, and we see their growth. And, and my kids were so excited when they grew. You know, sometimes they'd, they'd measure three days in a row, and they wouldn't grow, and they're, oh. But then after a few months, look at that. We didn't even know you grew. And, and other people that hadn't seen them in years. You know, I ran into a couple of kids at the Dogwood Trails Festival yesterday, kids I hadn't seen in years, and I'm going, holy cow. Something happened. You know, what? you ate, you slept, you, you grew. It's like magic, right? Here's the thing. As you partake of feeding from God's Word daily, as you begin to share in a small group, as you commit to coming and being taught the Word of God, and you worship together, as you fellowship with people in small groups, as you take ownership of the ministry, over time, you're going to grow spiritually. And some people around you that you hadn't seen in a while... And actually, I've heard some of your stories. I know this is true. You hadn't seen people in a while, and they meet you, and they go, what happened to you? Because you used to be like this hellion. What happened? And you get this opportunity to say, this crazy thing called grace. Can I tell you about it? And God changes a world one life at a time. But here's the thing. Remember, no matter how much you know, or no matter how much you do, if you don't have love for God and for people, really, that's the measure of spirituality. Are you more loving towards God or are you more loving towards people? If you don't have that, if you're not growing there, if you don't love God and love people, Paul says that your religion is worthless. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. And, and do me a favor and don't look around for a second. I just want to know how many of you understand the idea of substitutionary atonement. If you understand what Jesus did on the cross, that you didn't deserve it, if you understand it, not, not whether you're a Christian or not, do you understand substitutionary atonement? Would you just raise your hands? Okay. Now, understanding is not enough. John 5, 24 says, when you hear, you have to believe. And, and the way you do that is you receive what God did. And, and the Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And so if you've not done that, I'll give you an opportunity to in a minute. But how many of you would say, not only do I understand grace, but I have accepted God's grace and I'm a child of God? Would you raise your hands? All right. Now, real quickly. If you're not sure whether you're a Christ follower or not, would you raise your hand? Okay. I'm going to say a prayer, and, and, this, and the prayer has no magical meaning whatsoever. But if you mean these words to God, then today can be your spiritual birthday. Those of you who raise your hands, you're not sure. You pray, God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. He rose from the dead 
and he's alive today. And because of what he did to pay my price, I believe that God can make me spiritually alive today. Now, if you prayed that, and that's really the desire of your heart, you just cross the line from unbeliever to believer. And the Bible says when one person does that, the angels in heaven rejoice. I want you to put that on your card in a minute so I can talk with you in the future. Father, we want to praise you for what you're doing in and amongst us. And we pray that you would never stop. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your registration cards if you'd fill those out. There's two things I want you to put on the back. If you prayed today, then I want you to put on there, I prayed today, I believe I'm in the kingdom of God. And then there's two things we talked about today. I want you to write down, I understand grace, and I'm committed to spiritual growth. If you're ready to make those steps, I understand grace, and I'm committed to spiritual growth, write that down on your card. Any other prayer concerns, then write that on there. We have three baskets at the back. One is our joy basket. Uh, that's how we take up our offering. Um, or you can do that online, either one. We have a uh, registration card basket. Write your prayer concerns on there. Um, I pray through those uh, throughout the week. And um, put praises on there too. Y'all been doing that. I've been loving the praises that I've been seeing on the back of the cards. And then there's one called a bagel basket. Stands for building a great life, trying to get out of debt. Everything that goes in there goes to pay off our building. All right. Uh, Wes is going to come up here. Wes has got an announcement today. Did you turn up all those lights, Joe? Hello. Tess. I'm using your mic, Amy. I'm sorry. I'll try to lick it. Um, The time has come for me and my family to bid farewell to New Life Community Church. As of next Sunday, I'll be stepping down as worship pastor and would like to thank you for allowing me to serve you during my nearly 11 years here. I have deeply appreciated the opportunity to worship the Lord alongside you. Uh, I would like to especially thank the volunteer band members and sound techs that give their time, um, effort, and talent to help this ministry thrive. And I'm truly honored to play with you guys. And Doug, thank you for allowing me to to use my passions and serve the Lord here. We, uh, you guys, stay up here, by the way. I don't, I don't want to do this by myself. Um, there comes a time to turn a page, and uh, Wes and Jen. I've known them since 95, 1995. I guess I don't even need that, do I? That's what that's doing. I thought, what is that strange noise? It's me. Uh, known Wes and Jen since 1995. Uh, Jen was in the youth group. Wes was, Wes was illegally chasing. No, um, no, no, no. Um, but... Not only have I I've watched them grow up spiritually and, and physically and watched them grow into the couple that they are today and uh, the children that they have and the, the wonderful parents that they are, um, they've been very dear friends to me, and, and they are some of the very first people who... They were there on the first night that we had church on a Saturday night in, in 2002, June 22nd, 2002. Um, and so this is, this is something that's very difficult um, it hurts the heart, and uh, we want to honor them for ten years of service. Uh, he's gonna, Wes is gonna lead us again next week, and uh, then I would, I would like to, to ask you to um, give a love offering 
for Wes and Jen just to say thank you for the, for the 10 years. And so we'll take that up during the week and, and we'll present that to them next week. And we want to pray that God honors what they've done because we, we wouldn't be where we are today without them. And so um, it's just, it's with a heavy heart that, that, uh, that we're just going to say goodbye to them. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to pray for, for our church and pray for where God leads them.